All right, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians text we've been in. Now, we've been in Philippians for several, several weeks, and we're going to continue to be in Philippians. We're not going to stop our journey through Philippians. We will continue. Now, here's the thing. Last week, I told you that we have a very important topic to discuss, and that was Philippians 1, 1 through 3, where it talks about the unsaved Christian. What does it mean to be an unsaved Christian? That means you're a Christian in name only. You claim the name of Christ, but you are not of Christ. Christ is not in you. And so, really, there's no such thing as an unsaved Christian, but people will claim to be Christians even though they are not Christians. And that's what I was getting at with the title. And we talked about the counterfeit, the inauthentic, the unreal people who claim to be Christians who are not. And I gave you some examples. I pulled from their primary source documents to explain where they have missed the boat. And we saw where Paul has claimed that this is a mistake. These people are not Christians. But don't forget the point that he opened up with is it is joy. Rejoice in the Lord because rejoicing in the Lord is protection against false teaching. And that's what Paul is writing against here in this passage. So this week we get to do something special. We get to look at authentic traits or genuine traits of a Christian. What makes someone saved? What makes someone a Christian? And that's what we're going to explore today. Now, many of you have run across fake dollar bills or fake $20 bills. Many of you have run across something that is inauthentic. Have you guys heard of this term called fake news? I'm sure everyone in this room should be going, mm-hmm. In fact, I like to read it. No, um, fake news. Fake news means the news is not accurate. There's something inaccurate about it. It claims to be something. It claims to be a truth. And in reality, it's false. It's fake. And usually, fake news is enticing, not because it's completely in wild and out there, but because there's some nugget or kernel of truth mingled in with all the error. And so that's what we're going to see today is the forms of the traits of genuineness. And I know that's a weird way to say that, but genuine traits of a Christian. Let's read our passage for today. Philippians chapter 3, and we're only going to be studying 3, but I want to read the context. So in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship in the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. And let's read a little bit about more about Paul. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, 
I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection among the dead. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before this passage, this is a deep passage filled and jam-packed with information. Father, there's no way that in the time we have together that we would be able to unpack all that information. So Father, I pray that you place in the heart of everyone here a desire to know more a desire to hunger and thirst for your word and to pursue you in all that they do. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross. Lord, I pray that you would shine forth from this text, that we would grasp hold of Jesus Christ in this passage and that our hearts and our lives would be transformed by the nature of the gospel. Father, we are inadequate for these things and you know it. We need you and we hunger for you. In Jesus' name we pray last week. So let's look at these helpful gauges. We have to go fast because there's a lot of information and we're only looking at verse three. This is a reminder. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat back in front of you that may help you as you go along. I, um, I always recommend this because sometimes if I'm preaching from a text and you're not looking at the text in your lap or on your phone or in some device, you may miss what I'm trying to say. And I don't want you to think that I'm coming up with stuff on my own. I want you to say, is this in the text? Is this what the Bible says? And if this is what the Bible says, then you should listen to it. If it's what I have to say, I don't want you to listen to it. In fact, you should talk to the elders about getting me fired if I am not talking what the Bible says. And I want to make that very clear. I don't spend all week studying the text to come up with my own opinions and come up here and tell you something weird, okay? Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. So the first genuine trait of a true Christian is heart change. Now you may be like, okay, you just said, where is it at in the text? I don't see a word about the heart. and I don't see a word about change. So we have to understand what is this circumcision. True or Circumcision symbolizes the application of the covenant promises to the individuals whose God has chosen to them to receive it. So think about the Israelites. When they became God's covenant people, what was one of the things that God commanded? Circumcision. I'm not going to go into detail about circumcision because they're little ears. They have to be careful what they hear. But we know that circumcision is an outward sign of what God has done. And it's a form of, the, or it's a sign of the covenant. And so the Jews were very proud of their covenant relationship with God. The problem is they were circumcised on their body, but their hearts weren't circumcised. They were outwardly circumcised. They followed the law outwardly, but their hearts were not in it. And we see that a lot in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to look at some of these passages. But God has chosen them to receive the sign of the covenant, the circumcision. So let's go ahead and look at some of these new covenant 
words, this new circumcision, the, the circumcision for the new covenant. And that means we're going to look in the New Testament. And I'm going to talk about a lot of verses. My recommendation to you, if you are taking notes, to jot down the address and look these up later, okay? Because we're going to move fast. So first off, the nature of the new covenant. We see this in Galatians 6, verse 15. It says, For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. A new creation. Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Do you see the connections being made here? The people of God are not just externally marked up, but internally changed. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So what Paul is warning us is that these mutilators, is what he called them, these people who mutilate the flesh have come into the Christian church and they are saying, you are saved, okay, sure, Jesus is good, but you have to do these things. And he adds works. They add works to how you understand salvation. They add works to how you understand salvation. And so what we're saying here is, this is something that God does. He circumcises the heart. And what's interesting about this is the Jews are not untrained in the idea of a circumcision of the heart. In fact, we see that when um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus that late, late at night, he's a Pharisee, he comes to Christ and he says, we know that you're a teacher, we know that you're a prophet, Let me, uh, what, what are we supposed to do to be saved? And what does Jesus tell him? You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be renewed by God. And so what does Nicodemus say? Well, how, how is this possible? That doesn't make any sense. I can't be a baby and crawl back up inside and come back out again. It's like, this makes no sense. And God says, you know the scriptures, but you don't understand this. And so what he's saying is that you can find the new birth in the Old Testament. This is not a new thing that he's talking about. And so let's go ahead and look at what the Old Testament witnesses tell us. And of course, the big one, Jeremiah 31. This is the classic text of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. It says this in verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then we move over to Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
Can we pause for a minute and just think about that mental imagery? That when we are dead in our trespasses, when we are dead in sin, we have this heart of stone. Just imagine what a heart of stone, how much blood do you think a heart of stone could pump? Not very much. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take that heart of stone, he's going to remove it and place a heart of flesh in there. That's heart surgery right there, friends. That's serious. That's a new birth. And so what we're seeing is an act of regeneration must occur. Did you hear who's doing this act of regeneration? The Holy Spirit through God. It's a Holy Spirit enacted regeneration. And this is important. Verse 27, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe, observe my ordinances. So we see that these are all aspects of the new covenant that's pointed to. And it's a common theme in the Old Testament, not just in the prophets. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the people as it is today. Therefore, listen to this, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. That was all the way back in Deuteronomy. So if you are an Israelite and you hear this word about circumcision and say what the false prophets are offering is a works-based external righteousness. And then this is what Paul says. For we are the circumcision. Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, if anyone can boast in being the most perfect Jew, it would be Paul. But what does he say? We are the circumcision. He's talking to Gentile Christians, Greeks, and he's saying we are the circumcision. Roman citizens in Philippi, he says we are the circumcision. And he's encouraging them to recognize what this looks like. This is a change of heart. It is not an external action. We talked a lot about it last week. Oh, I come to church so God should save me. Or I know all the chapters in the Bible, so God should save me. Or I've read the Bible 20 times, God should save me. That's external. That's external works-based righteousness. And that's not what saves you. What saves you is a changed heart. Or if we look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. A circumcised heart means that you have a heart change. Open heart surgery has occurred, and God has given you new birth, new life. Well, let's talk about conversion for a second. And the turning of the heart to God and holiness is what conversion is. It's a turning of your thoughts, your desires, your affections of the heart from sinful and carnal or worldly or earthly lust and pleasures towards holy things of God and Christ and salvation. This is incredible, friends. As I was reading um, Jonathan Edwards, a treatise concerning religious affections, he was talking about what it looks like to have this new birth. And he says, something spiritual has happened, something not normal. Because if you look at today, how do we determine what is spiritual? So a lot of people will get excited over a new idea, a new topic. He says, that's not it. He said, some people have words pop into their mind. That's not spiritual. He said, that happens to people that are not Christians. He says, what is spiritual? He said, it's a different thing altogether. 
He said it's a completely different thing. It's a pursuit of holiness where your affections are raised based on God's holiness. And when you see a holy and perfect God who does not allow anything imperfect arise and your heart is stirred by that, he said that's a good indicator. That's a good step. And so you must be born again. My question to you is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Or have you been faking it to make it? Have you been coming up to church because you think you're a Christian, and that's what so-called Christians do? Have you been born again? This is, the, this is what this text is pushing towards. Have you been born again? I don't want you to sleep until you answer this question. Have I been born again? Do you love Jesus Christ because of who he is? Do you love Jesus Christ because of who he is? Is he altogether lovely? Are you awed by God and his nature, his characteristics, his attributes? Do those things impress you? Or are you in love with what he can give you? Do you love the gifts that he can give you? I shared this uh, story about my kids. I said, boys, if I gave you this really cool water park in the backyard, would you love me or the water park? And they, they were like thinking about this for a while, right? Like, they're like, well, we love you and the water park, right? Like they're thinking about how they can get this water park. And it's because their love is predicated on what I'm giving them. Now, we talked more and we found out they don't really just love me because of what I give them but they love me because of who I am to them, their father. But this is what we do with Christ. So many people are moved at the idea that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and they no longer have to deal with the guilt and the shame. And so they say, well, I love what he does for me. But do you love him? Do you love Jesus because of who he is? When you read Philippians 2 and you see that this being existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. When you see that, do you see the characteristics of Christ's humility? Does that impress you? And that's the question that you need to ask. If I'm not born again, then of course I'm going to love it when someone gives me a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Of course I'm going to love someone who promises me all these good things. But that's not being born again. That's fleshly. That's earthly. Of course, I like the cop who doesn't give me a ticket when I deserve it. Of course, I appreciate that. Of course, my heart and my emotions get stirred when this happens. But that's not being born again. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. We are born again through the Word of God. God uses His Word inspired by the Spirit to affect the heart and to change. If you are not born again, the first thing you need to do is you need to get in your Bible and begin to read in John chapter 1 and study who this Jesus is. And when God decides to awaken you to who He is, that's when the conversion happens. The second genuine trait of the true Christian is heart worship. Look at the second part of, of verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision. Part 2 says, The ones who worship 
by the Spirit of God. Worship by the Spirit. This word for worship is often used for the for worship in the temple, temple service, and how the Levites would serve in the temple. And so that's a form of worship, life worship. Your whole life is worship. And so how do we worship? Well, we can look back at Ezekiel 36, 27. And it says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Did you hear that? Worship is obedience. An act of worship is obedience to God. What we see in 1 John, and if you don't, if you have some, if you're lacking assurance in your salvation, go read 1 John. In 1 John, he says, those who love God keep his commandments. That is what we do when we worship. We are worshiping by the Spirit of God, and the gift of the Spirit produces worship. Romans 8, 6 says, now the mindset, and we've talked about this mindset, of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. So the first thing we've noticed is that you have to have a heart change. The second thing is that our worship is Spirit-induced, is Spirit-worship. When I was reading about this, there's so much more that we could talk about when it comes to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a very interesting member of the Trinity. And as we study it, we see that the Spirit is the down payment and the blessings of eternal life, which we shall be given in heaven. If you look at John 7.37, John 7.38 and 39, and then John 4.14, and then you compare those, 21 and 6, 22, 1, and 17. And I think we should probably look at Revelation 21, 6. Let's go ahead and pop over there. It's at the back. Keep your finger in Philippians. I don't want you to feel like I'm just making stuff up. So I want you to see this with your own eyeballs. 21, 6. Chapter 21. If you don't know where Revelation is, it's at the very back. Then he said to, the, to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And then look at 22.1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Then go ahead and look down to verse 17. Both the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. You see the Spirit's work with the Son in this process of giving the blessings of eternal life. All you who are thirsty, come. Isaiah 55 begins with that. All you who are thirsty, come and drink. And it's talking about Christ. We see God the Father sending the Son through the power of the Spirit over and over again in our text. It's a very Trinitarian type of worship. So true heart worship is from the Spirit of God. So 
natural question is, who is the focus of Christian worship? If my heart has been changed and I have a spirit worship, who is the object? I know a lot of theologians have called the, the Holy Spirit the shy person of the Trinity. And the reason they say that is because the Holy Spirit points to someone else. It points to Jesus Christ. Continually, the Spirit's job is to highlight Jesus. It's sort of like those lights on the outside of a building. The, the goal of those lights is not to say, oh, look how cool those lights are on that building. No, the, the point of those lights is to point to the building. So that as you drive by, you examine the building or the light that goes on the flag at nighttime or the light that goes on a sign. The goal is not to say, oh, man, that's cool that that, light, that sign has a light. The goal is, what does the sign say? And that's what the Spirit is pointing to. So, it's Christ. And it's an internal form of worship, not just external worship. It's so easy to come to church on Sunday morning. And that may be easier for some of us than others. The more kids you have, it feels like it gets harder. And you bring all your kids to church, and you sit in a pew or a chair, and you open up your Bible and you start thinking about what you're having for dinner. You start thinking about what's, where are we going for lunch this week? I wonder what delicious food would they have? What am I going to order? How much money do I have in the bank? Let me get my phone out. And what we do is we start to externally worship, but we're not internally worship. How easy is it to come not prepared for God? How easy is it to not to come to show up, not looking for living water from the, from the Spirit, but for living water from yourself. It's very easy. And that's what we're being warned about here. So the question I want to ask for this, this point is, do you have the Spirit working in you? Do you have the Spirit working in you, rising you raising you up to worship? If not, that's another indicator your heart may not be changed. And if you do have the Spirit working in you, what should we see? The fruit of the Spirit. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Stop giving me hints, Brian. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see those increasing in you? If you do not see love increasing in you, there's a problem. If there's joy not increasing. Now, this is I want to make a real quick point. That doesn't mean that I walk around joyful all the time. That doesn't mean that there is happiness that just exudes out of me, even in the most miserable of circumstances. But is there a continual trajectory of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If there is not, question, do I have the Spirit working in me? I may not be reborn. Not just one of these fruit of the Spirit. You might be like, well, I'm really good at love, but I'm not so good at patience. I'm really good at self-control, but I'm not so good at kindness. You have to have them all. It's not the, the, the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. These all are produced by the Spirit. The third thing that we see, the third genuine trait of the true Christian is full-hearted trust in Christ. I like how Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, true religion, in great part, 
consists in the affections. Did you hear what he said? True religion consists in great part to the affections. The affections. What are the affections? Well, it's our emotions. It's the feeling side of things. And so he's saying that true religion involves your emotions. Why was he saying that? Well, there was this thing called the Great Awakening. And there were some very serious Puritans who thought that this was a very bad move. And they thought it was fake. They said all these people are acting like, are saying they're Christians, or they're having all these emotional experiences. They're probably not saved. We don't believe this is an act of God. And so Jonathan Edwards took up his pen, and he said, let me write a thousands of words, more than a book, on this stuff. And he uses like all these deep words, and it's a really complicated text. But what you find out of there is he says there are true affections and there are false affections when it comes to worship. And he breaks them all down in typical Puritan fashion, and he gets to the point where he says, the religion that God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above the state of indifference. Did you hear that? That's pretty powerful. If you are trained in the observation of art, and you go to, let's say, Italy, and you look at all the beautiful paintings, and you were just like, hmm, bah humbug, and you just kept on walking, maybe you really don't understand art. Maybe you're not truly affected by what you see. Maybe you don't appreciate that beauty. Maybe you don't have an eye for it. Or, let's say you are a musician, and you only listen to the radio, and you never tune your ears to true, well-done music. And you go about your business, and you hear something um, phenomenal. So there was a, a thing done not too long ago, a world-class, like top-of-the-line musician. I think it was a, a, a piano player, or a, a violin player. I don't even know what this is. It's a piano or a violin. A violin player, he's playing there, he's playing his, his music, he plays like the best most complicated music, and he's in the subway station. And all these people just kind of walk by, ignoring it. And he is playing something that you have to pay thousands of dollars to go to a concert hall to listen to. And they are just ignoring that music because they don't have their heart awakened to the value. And so that's what, what he is saying. He said, if you are truly affected by God, your affections will be resulting in that. So that when you look at the things of God, you don't just say, oh, that's kind of cool. Mindset of Christ, existing in the form of God, not exist considered equality with God as something to be exploited. And you kind of sound like Eeyore as you continue studying your text. That's, that's crazy. Do you not see what's going on here? That God the Father sent the Son to regenerate us, to change our hearts, so that we could be saved, that we could spend eternity with the water of life. That should raise our affections. We should want to jump up and sing hallelujah. That's why we should want to sing beautiful music to the Lord. We want to rejoice in the Lord always. So, we see that the genuine Christian is one who is affected emotionally by God. That your will is transformed through the right understanding of the text and through the emotional response to it, 
and then you make a decision to obey. We see that there is a full mind, heart, will connection in the true Christian. How are we supposed to love the Lord, our God? With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. Not halfway. So if you are only halfway loving God, you should, you should question. Am I truly affected by the things of God? Or am I starving out true love for God by being in love with the things of this world? Is my love for Netflix interrupting my Bible time? Is my love for extra sleep inter interrupting my prayer time? Is my love for that day off interrupting my time of worshiping the Lord on His day? Question these things. Are you starving out your affections? We see that an intense hatred and a fear and disgust of sin. If we truly love God, we will hate what is despising to Him. People will say, well, I don't, I don't understand how God could be angry. Why should we have an angry God? Well, God is angry when something conflicts with something He loves. If someone were to walk up to my kids and slap them across the face, what would be the most Christ-like response for me? How would I be like God in that moment? I would be angry. I would be very angry that you would treat my children. And then why, why, do, why am I angry because of how you're treating my children? Because I love them. Because I love them with my whole heart. And so God is holy. And when his holiness is offended, we should be angry at sin. When we see someone treated poorly, there should be an anger that stirs up within us. If our loved ones are treated badly, anger should arise from that. And so what we see is that we have to hate and have fear and disgust of what God hates because it's displeasing to Him. And we turn to God for His goodness and our satisfaction and our joy. And then, of course, we feel grief when we feel Him absent. That's what it means to love. When we love our spouse and they go away for months at a time, we feel some sorrow because we love them. If you have not been in your Bible and you have not been spending time with God and you don't feel anything, any way about it, you're indifferent to the things of God. And that's concerning to me. When you treat the bride of Christ, the church, as a disposable napkin where you can just come and go and make no commitment, I worry. I'm a little sad because what you're doing is you're treating the bride that God has chosen poorly. And that's why we need to make sure that we as Christians bond together in our meeting. We should have a zeal, a fervency for the divine things. Sometimes men will get a sense of love because of how virtuous the other person is to them. I love my wife because she cooks me breakfast. Or I love my friend because he always listens to me. Do I really love my friend or do I love 
what I'm getting. And that's the things we have to be aware of. You ever watch a movie? I would say, everybody should say, yes, we all watch movies. We're not weird. We're not Puritans, right? We all watch movies. Not that Puritans are bad. I love the Puritans, but there was no movies. All right, do you ever watch a movie? I'm getting sidetracked here. I want to I wanna wrap this up. Did you ever watch a movie in which you get angry? The movie makes you angry. Somebody in that movie did something. Why did it make you angry? He didn't do it to you. Maybe it reminds you of a way you were treated. Maybe it reminds you of how someone else is treated. I cry at mo- in movies. I don't know what it is. My dad used to, and I used to think he was weird. And I used to like kind of like laugh at him, like, ha ha, dad, you're not a real man. You, you cry at movies. Now I'm over here watching a movie, and I like bawling, right? It's like when the daughter comes back to her dad, and it's like, oh, I always loved you or something. I'm just like, you know, and I start tearing up. This because I'm moved because I feel connection to it, right? I'm connected to that movie. And that's what we see here is if you have zero emotions when it comes to the things of God, you are not connected. You are not connected to what is going on. And so that there needs to be emotion, heartbreak, when we think the things of God treated poorly. And what we see is that in verse 3, it says, boast in Christ Jesus, or worship in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Jesus tied himself to the Spirit's work in John 16, 14. He says, believers should boast in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this kind of sums up, if you've you've been taking a nap through this whole thing, I want you to wake up and listen to this one thing. Where do you put your trust? Where is your confidence, Latin for faith? Where is your trust? Is it in your flesh? Is it the things that you do? I have said these things. I have done these things. I'm not as bad as that person. Or I've done this work. And therefore God should accept me. Or is it in Christ alone? Only because of his work am I saved. Only because of what he has done am I saved. That's who I put my trust in. And that's what Paul is saying. This sums up. The difference between a true Christian and a false Christian. A true Christian and a false Christian. A true Christian will trust completely in Jesus Christ for everything there. Period. A false Christian will say Jesus Christ plus. Jesus plus my good works. Jesus plus my behavior. Jesus plus my attitude. Jesus plus. That's false Christianity. Where is your trust? I like this po- uh, this parable by Jesus in Matthew 13. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has. In his joy, he sells everything he has and buys that field. Genuine Christianity is finding that pearl of great price. He finds a treasure in the field And he covers it back up, sells everything he has in order to buy that treasure in the field. Christ is the treasure in the field. Do you value Christ enough to give up everything in this earth, on this earth, for him? Are you willing to sell all your satisfaction and happiness for Christ? Are you willing to put to death this world for the sake of Christ? 
Genuine saving faith means you are trusting or resting in Christ alone for your salvation, and he is your greatest treasure. The church's historic understanding of saving faith, we've talked about this, contains three elements. The facts, notia is the Latin, I don't know why we use Latin, but there it is. Comprehension of the facts, a census, and trust in the facts, fiducia. Trust is really only seen over time. So we may know the facts about Jesus, we may believe that these facts are true, but if we do not trust, then we've missed faith. We don't have faith. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you're missing the boat. If I was to die now, how would we know where I'm going? If you were to die during a really dark time in your life where you were in rebellion against God, how would you know where you're going? This is a common question, isn't it? If I look back on my life in a time when I was in rebellion against God, when I was drinking, when I was doing everything possible to abandon the God that my parents taught me. If I look back on that time and I had died during that time, I don't know if I would be assured of salvation. I don't know. if I would, Because I wasn't living a Christian life. Only God knows whether my heart had been regenerated at that time. Many of you can look back now and say, yeah, there was a time when I fell away from the faith for a time. I wasn't living a Christian life, but now I am. How do, we, how do we examine this? The question is not so much what happened then, but what happens now. What happened on the cross, and what do we do about it today? Are you following Jesus Christ today? Have you put your hope in him today? Are you regenerated through the washing of the word today? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Psalm 27 says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Boasting in Christ and worshiping in Christ are synonyms here. Are you worshiping Christ by the Spirit? And I'm not saying that we're perfect. I'm not saying that you don't sin. I'm not saying that you don't make mistakes. In fact, Paul talks about it here. He says, not that I've already achieved it or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold. So Paul himself, after writing this, says, I'm not perfect, but I am making every effort. I am striving after Christ. This week, I want you to take a few minutes and write down or look at these genuine traits and determine in your own hearts, do I belong to Christ or do I belong to myself? Am I selfish? Am I a slave of Christ? Do I belong to him or do I chase after my own stuff? Write it down. Think about it. Ask yourself, am I growing in love for Christ daily? You know, it would be really hard for you to love someone if you never talk to or read their letters. These are God's word to you. So how do we conclude this? How do we end this sermon? I mean, I could give you a, a poem and we could sing a song or... Maybe we should talk about a changed heart, heart worship, and full-hearted trust. Those are the three things that mark a genuine Christian. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. You must be converted. And then you continue to grow in full-hearted worship. And it's like having a new sense of spiritual things. So that 
you can love the things of God. You have to understand good music in order to really enjoy good music. You have to understand art in order to enjoy art, truly. I mean, because some stuff I've seen, I'm like, this is weird, right? I don't understand how anyone likes this. I would never put that in my house, right? But somebody who appreciates the brush strokes and the work truly has a sense of these things. And so in order to enjoy the things of God, you must have a sense of the things of God. 1 Peter 1.23, Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. That's your charge this week. You must be born again through the word. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we have seen in this passage, that we must be born again. This is the message of the prophets. This is the message of the Old Testament. This is the message of Jesus Christ himself. This is the message of you that you have inspired in your word, continually saying, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Father, I pray that you would work the work in our heart. Do the surgery of our heart. Cut out that heart of flesh and put that heart of, cut out the heart of stone, Father, and put the heart of flesh inside of us so that we may grow in spiritual sense and understanding of your word and that we would truly pursue Jesus Christ who is beautiful, who is perfect, whose substitution for our sin that we worship and we thank you for every single month when we do our communion service. We recreate it in the practice of baptism. And we thank you for these continual reminders that everyone in this room must be born again in order to see the Father. I pray that you would work that in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.